Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Deeper Still, a podcast where we carve out space for meaningful conversation about God and life as we seek to pay attention to the ways he calls us to go deeper still in relationship with him and with one another. My name is Sue Ann Camfield. I have the great joy of being the host of this podcast, and I say it all the time, but I say it because I mean it so much. I'm so glad you chose to join us today. If you have not yet taken a moment to follow or subscribe to Deeper Still on your favorite podcast platform or share an episode with a friend, can I ask you to do that? Just take a moment. Just do it. It's one of the ways that we can let other people know about the show. It helps us to get the word out. It helps us to improve our content. And so um, I would just really appreciate it if you could take a moment to do that. Also, we're doing something new today. I'm kind of excited about we are going to do a book giveaway. I mean, how fun is that? I don't know why I haven't thought of it before, but I'll share all those details at the end of the episode. So be sure to listen all the way to the end. And uh, who knows, when you hear this conversation, you might think, this is the book I need. Well, today on Deeper Still, we are having a conversation on a topic that we haven't had yet on Deeper Still, and that is a conversation about marriage. Marriage, my friends, isn't that fun? I think with Valentine's Day being a few weeks ago, it just got me thinking more and more about this topic and the need to have some really good conversation about, about how we enter our marriages, how we, how we survive some of our marriages, and perhaps some of the encouragement we might need to hang in there through the rough spots. And so I reached out to someone whose writing I have been admiring from a distance for the last several years, and that is Dorothy Latell Greco. Dorothy and her husband, Christopher, have been leading marriage workshops and retreats, speaking at conferences nationwide, and have been helping couples create and sustain healthy marriages for over 25 years. Dorothy has written for publications like Christianity Today, Relevant, Missio Alliance, Mops, and Propel Women. And she is the author of two books, Making Marriage Beautiful, and the one we're going to talk about today, Marriage in the Middle, Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenges, and Joys. I will say we cover a lot of ground in this conversation, and we do have some content really specific to that middle season of our marriages for those of us who have been married for a little while. But at some point, I realized during this conversation, marriage is just marriage. People are just people. Conflict is just conflict. Sacrifice is just sacrifice. And so whether you've been married for five years or 50 years, I do think you're going to learn something from this conversation today. So friends, whatever you're doing, wherever you find yourself, settle up, settle in, and listen in as Dorothy and I go deeper still. Well, Dorothy, welcome to Deeper Still. I'm so glad to see you here. Yes, it's great to be with you. Dorothy, what's fun about this for me, what's been so much fun as I've started this podcast over the last several years, is there are people in my life and in my world who I've known from a distance or I've known through the writing world or I have I have benefited from their words and their thought life and um, their talent. And I've never actually uh, met them or met them only a little bit. And you were one of those people for me. I just, you're such a gifted writer. Um, you are such a, a thoughtful woman and we've had had some overlapping circles, uh, but to sit here with you today on a podcast is just such a joy for me. Well, it's totally my pleasure. 
Well, we have a really fun conversation to have today. Uh, uh, this is the first time I've talked about marriage on this podcast. And so I have been excited and eager to have you here, mostly because we're going to be talking about uh, your book, Marriage in the Middle, and that middle being kind of this middle spaces in our lives, uh, maybe from ages 45 to 65, somewhere in there. And I have to confess, I just recently... I didn't know I entered midlife, but apparently <laughs> I have. I'm a little traumatized as I say this. My husband and I have been married for 25 years. Uh, this fall, we celebrate our 25th anniversary. And so apparently, I guess this conversation is for me as much as it is for anybody out there listening. Well, congratulations. Um, 25 years is a uh, big one to celebrate. It is a big one to celebrate. How long have you and Christopher been married? So we are going on... 32 years uh, in a couple months. Okay. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. So you have your seven years ahead of me. So you have all kinds of good stuff to share. I have all kinds of questions for you today. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. So I think for our listeners sake, just starting out when we talk about midlife and we're talking about marriage in the middle, what are we talking about? What does the season look like? Yeah. So technically they the people who keep track of these things say that midlife is between 40 to 65, but obviously, you know, very few of us are going to live to be 130. So it's really not in that uh, age frame, but there is something that's happening during that time of life. That's very real. And it's uh, very destabilizing. You know, I was at the gym today and um, I'm sure many of your listeners know what a BOSU ball is, but I'll just explain it. It's like a ball that's cut in half and the bottom side is rigid, but the top is squishy and soft. And the goal is you, there's many different exercises you can do. But the one that I tend to do is I stand on top of it, on, in the middle of it, and then I do squats. And the thing is, it's very shaky. You know, it's not rigid and it's rounded. And in order to stay on the ball and not fall off, you have to really focus you have to engage your core in a way that's um, very intentional. And then you, for me, at least, I have to fix my sight on something that doesn't move because if I just look around, then I lose my balance. And in many ways, it feels like that is so much of what midlife is. Like the world is shaking under our feet and we have to figure out what does it look like to engage? What does it look like to stay present? What does it look like to not fall off and get crushed by it and um, to keep going? So when I started doing these exercises, I could do two. And now I'm up to 25. So I'm, I'm working on my core. Amazing. So, yeah. So back to your question, I think that midlife is a time of um, losses. Uh, if we're parents, you know, our children tend to move out during this time frame. We are often saying goodbye to our parents. Um, we're coming face to face with our limitations in ways that we probably haven't in the past. And then on a more practical level, you know, our bodies, all of us are going through massive changes. It's, you know, like reverse teenage years, right? Um, for men, it's andropause, which is hardly ever talked about. And for women, it's perimenopause and, and menopause. Um, we are facing shifts in caretaking responsibilities. Oftentimes we have to, uh, you know, up the ante in terms of what our parents are needing from us or our elderly siblings. Um, we are facing some pretty deep disappointments, things that we thought, oh my gosh, I thought this would be different by this time, or I thought I would have more success in my career at this time, or whatever. Um, we come to face-to-face -to -face with these things, and then we, you know, our 
uh, have to decide, well, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to deal with the disappointments and the losses? So it's a time that can be very exciting and dynamic and a lot of potential. But if we don't do our spiritual work, it can also be uh, really devastating and become lead us into a place of despair or hopelessness, um, et cetera. Yeah, I love one of the things that you talk about is reframing a midlife, I think is yep. how you put it. And and the fact that when we get to this place, it, could, it there could be a lot of things that go wrong for us. But if we take a moment and we pause and we reflect, and it, like you said, we do the hard work and we're intentional about it, that it actually propels us forward. And I love that you say, you know, we're informed by our past, but we're shaped by the promise of our future. Mm-hmm. And I thought, gosh, in terms of marriage, that's such a beautiful way to think about it because we all come into marriage with so many different um, expectations and and stories and baggage. And we're going to get to some of that. And you mentioned a lot of things that can happen, but but so often we we come into marriage with those things and we are informed by our past, right? We can't escape our past, but yet um, that can create a really beautiful future if we do it correctly and we we allow God to do his good work in our marriages and those things. And I love that you say it's it's in this phase of our lives that we have to reframe what midlife means for us. Yeah, I think that far too often it is seen as, you know, the the trope or the meme of the midlife crisis where people make really stupid choices and they spin out, um, they hurt people. And that does certainly happen, but I don't think that that happens just on a whim. I think that people are on a trajectory to make those sort of choices. And so that's where if we have the kind of self-awareness that I feel like scripture calls us to have, where we really are paying attention to what's happening in our hearts, what's happening in our minds, and then we do the work that following Jesus requires of us, I think that there's it's much less likely that you're going to find yourself in that you know proverbial midlife crisis kind of thing. That's not to say we're not going to have crises that we face, because we will, um, but I think how we respond to them makes all the difference. Yeah. And I love in your book that you're pretty vulnerable about some of those things that came your way, the things that you experienced in your marriage that I think was the impetus for this book. Yes. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your story with us? Yeah. Um, I think that being vulnerable is probably one of my superpowers Mm -hmm. and um, it doesn't pay very well, but nevertheless, that is just one of the ways that I feel like that the Lord has called me at this, at this juncture in my life. So it was now 12 years ago, um, so that means it was just like when I was around 50, turning 50. And our eldest son, so we dropped our eldest son off at college. He was going to Calvin, so we made the trip out to the Midwest. And, um, you know, that was a loss, obviously. We, we love him dearly, still love him. And really, he never came back home. He got married two years later and is now in Seattle. So that was kind of, you know, the last time that he was really with us. Then on the way home, we got bedbugs from a hotel in Rochester. Um, and as we were crossing the New York state line coming into Massachusetts, where we live, uh, my husband's sister called to say, mom's in the hospital. And that began what was a very, very short um time that we had left with her. So she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and passed away two months later. So it was just like lightning fast. She was only 70, I think 71 or 72. Um, that was so unexpected and so difficult, so painful for all of us. Um, 
in the same season, a church that we had been part of for 15 years helped to start, loved deeply, fabulous, fabulous people. The two, two people really at the top decided that they wanted to make a real strong theological shift. And um, we just felt like, yeah, we can't sign off on that. And it became clear to us that we were going to have to leave. And that was just like horrifying, terrifying, you know, so deeply, deeply hard for us. We loved that church. It was the only kids, that, the only church that our kids knew. So it was very difficult for them. Um, and my husband, you know, made the decision to leave. He was on staff full time with no job lined up. So that was also slightly terrifying, you know, having just put one, one child in college and having another not not too far behind. Um, our next door neighbor fell off a porch and, and broke his neck and died uh, two weeks later. Oh. So, you know, it almost just felt like I don't want to go out of the house. I can't like, I can't bear all the losses and all the, like what's going to happen today kind of feeling. There was a, there was like a dread um, I think that came over both of us. And so we had a year where we didn't we didn't have any clue what his next job was going to be. He was he is the main income earner in our household. Um, figuring out well what what where are we going to go to church? You know where are we going to find a community of people that we can walk with in a season when we're now really needing to be with people. Um, so it was really difficult, very painful, and in some ways I feel like we're still dealing with some of the fallout from that. Um, but yeah, in that, so in that one year period, we sort of hit all of the markers, um, for, for the surprises and challenges of midlife. Wow. Isn't that interesting how it seems like when it rains, it pours, right? We've had a similar story and maybe I'll share that a little bit later, but I, I'm curious cause normally, you know, in marriages, we, we often joke about how we marry our opposite. You know, we're, we're so different from one another usually, which also means we respond to crises mm -hmm. or situations different. How did, how did you and Christopher respond to that? Did you respond very differently? And, and what did that do to your relationship? Oh, we could talk about that for the entire hour. Um, yes, Christopher and I are very, very different people. He is as extroverted as they get, and I'm probably as introverted as they get, although I really do like being with people. I can only just take so much, and then I need to, you know, pull back. So I think that it hit him very differently. You know, it was more for me, it was more a relational, the relational losses. For him, it was the relational loss of his mother, obviously. But in terms of having to leave that church and having to make that kind of very strong choice for the sake of his own integrity, he was then faced with uh, what on earth am I going to do now? You know, with a very quirky resume. Um, he's an art. He was the arts pastor and the worship leader at the church, you know, those two things don't necessarily translate very well when you're um, in your 50s, right? That mm -hmm. most of the time people want young worship leaders. So for him, it caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, fear. For me, I think it was more just grief and sadness. He got to that, but it took him, he, he had to travel a little bit further than I did. So Part of what was hard is I felt like, you know, not only am I facing all these losses around me, but I feel like I'm losing my husband. I mean, that's an exaggeration. He wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't being unfaithful. Um, but he, what to some extent, had a little bit of a mental health crisis. And if you're married to somebody who has a mental health crisis, it's very painful and it's confusing. And you don't always know, like, how to best help the person when they're in the midst of their crisis. Um, so as we look back, we can say like, yeah, he was really depressed during that season, but because 
he had to keep working. Like there was almost no space for him to do so, um, to really grieve and to, and to reckon with the, the depth of the losses that he faced. So his journey was very internal and it took a long time, I think, for him to really understand what was happening and all the different ways that the, the losses impacted him. Um, so for me, I just kind of like put my head down and kept going and I just thought, okay, well, if, you know, if you're going to get taken out by this, I am just going to be super present where our kids, I'm going to, you know, do all the household chores. I'll take care of everything, which has its own issues. Doesn't it? When one, one partner does that. Um, and that tends to be my, I guess my continuum is that I do, it takes me longer to process things. And I think my default is to just deal with it myself, you know, to go into an independent space where I don't need anybody. So I also felt like during that season that the Lord was really challenging me to let other people in. That's really good. And so what did you do as a married couple then to get through that? How did you, did you come towards each other? Did you stay in your own lanes? How did you get through that time period? It depended on the day, (laughs) to be honest with you. I think for me, it became clear that I had to just get over, um, I had to get over myself. It was almost like, it doesn't really matter what I'm feeling in this situation. My husband needs my support and my love. And so I have to do whatever it takes in order to love him well. You know, we can't continue on that kind of a trajectory for forever because we need to. Ha- it needs to be a reciprocal and mutual relationship, obviously. But in this season, I would say that there was probably nine months where my needs were a little bit pushed to the side, so that I could really focus on supporting him and loving him. Um, you know, we met with friends of ours who we've known for a very long time, more than forty years, and prayed with them on a regular basis. Uh, he did some counseling with somebody he's he's been in counseling with before who's been really helpful so we kind of just pieced together you know a patchwork of of help and support um and then just leaned on people a lot you know really uh in that season we really really leaned on folks which was challenging because some of those folks were still in the old church and we felt like well we don't want to be talking with them about what's happening because we don't want to disrupt their spiritual lives. So it, it was messy. It was really messy. Mm, I bet. Yeah. So once you got through to the other side of that, what was some of the fruit you experienced from persevering, from staying together, from sacrificing your own needs, sometimes to focus on the needs of the other? When you got to the other side of that, what was some of the fruit in your marriage that you saw? Well, again, I do want to say, I feel like we're still, I don't know that we're definitely both feet are on the other side yet. I think we're still processing some of the betrayal and some of the hurt that we feel. And, and truthfully, some of the ways that like, what does it look like to trust God? What does it mean to trust God when um, bad things still happen, when you still have losses, when you're still betrayed? Um, so I think that there's a way that it deeply shook our spiritual lives that can always be good, but it can also be difficult and um, unfamiliar, I guess. So in terms of the fruit, I would say that my my respect for him deepened. You know, the fact that he was willing to make that kind of a sacrificial choice to leave a place that I know he loved and that we both loved for the sake of um, his own integrity felt deeply moving to me mm-hmm. because it would have been very easy for him to just say, you know, we can work this out. This isn't really that important. Um, so my respect of him grew. I think that his trust of me grew. 
when he saw how hard I was working to, to love him and to support him, I think that that shifted something in him and opened him up in a way to receive from me um, differently in a more deeper fashion than he had in the past. Um, yeah. So I'd say that probably those are two of the, two are the top things that we've noticed that have been beneficial, that, we've, that have benefited us from that time. Thanks so much for sharing that. I know it's not always always easy to, you know, talk about marriage ups and downs, but I think it's so important for people to hear because I think when people hear our stories and realize that you know what, we're all going to go through these ups and downs and it, when you hang in there, you persevere, you do some of these things and and that it can be um and I love that you said even you know, we're not quite to the other side of it. We're still working on it. I mean, isn't that the truth of marriage? Do we ever get to the other side of anything in marriage, but yet we can still grow and, and deepen in our respect um, and love for each other even yes. through difficult things. And so I, I love the way that you were very honest about that and said, you know, we're not we're not quite there yet, but we're working on it. And I just feel like that's that's just what marriage is. So one of the things that you also say is you say that there's three qualities that really become imperative in marriage. And I love these words because I don't think these are words we typically associate with marriage. At least maybe I haven't. Mm -hmm. But you you use the word malleability, resilience, and engagement. And I'm wondering if you could take a minute and just unpack those three words and why they're imperative to marriage, especially in this middle part of our lives. Yes. And if I were to rewrite the book, I think I would also add flexibility. Um, mm. But anyway, the three that are there, malleability, it's essentially how much pressure can we withstand without snapping? Like how can we continue to change rather than getting stuck or becoming rigid? If you think of it in terms of, you know, metals, right? Gold is very malleable. You can pound it into a super, super thin, very flexible um, sheet where other metals like lead are inflexible and not malleable at all. So we want to be able to be, to be changed by what we experience. And the resilience is, you know, how quickly do we bounce back? Um, after something difficult has happened. And that doesn't mean that we can't grieve or that we can't spend time, you know, not leading or whatever uh, so that we can heal, but rather that we don't give up. Um, you know, there's so many people are relying on us at this point in our lives, from our kids to our parents, to our church communities, to our neighbors. And if we give up, if we just say, I can't do it, I just can't do it anymore, um, it's not just a personal loss for us, but it's a loss for people around us as well. And then engagement is just, um, you know, choosing not to check out. Um, a couple of years ago, Christopher and I did a, uh, I think it was a half day workshop on the, on the North Shore of Boston. And during lunch, I sat with a couple who was elderly. And when I say elderly, I don't mean in the 60s. They were in the 80s. <laughs> and, you know, just said, like, what brought you here? And my assumption was that it was probably a second marriage for the both of them. You know, like maybe they had both been widowed. And the husband said, well, actually, today is our 50th anniversary. And I was like, why are you here? <laughs> you know, you could be teaching this workshop. And he, his response is so stuck with me. And what he said was, when I heard about the workshop, I turned to my wife and said, let's go. There's always something more that we can learn. Mm. And I just thought, doggone it. That's, that's who I want to be when I'm in my 80s and when I've been married for 50 plus years. Like this sense that we're not done. We're not done learning. We're not, we, we haven't checked out. We're not on you know autopilot. We're continuing to work, continuing to be intentional, continuing to understand that if this marriage is going to grow and going to thrive, then we need to continue to do some work. 
Yes, that's so good. And you know, I think what one of the things that I've learned, and it's just so apparent the longer you're married, is that you know, you go through different seasons and that sounds cliche, I guess, to use that word seasons, but your marriage changes from season to season. And so it's like each new season you enter, it's like, oh, we haven't done this before. Um, there's some new things we have to learn. And so similar, you know, similarly to you, you know, my husband, Eric and I, um, over these last couple of years have had so many changes. We mm-hmm. became empty nesters. Um, I transitioned in my workplace just to a new role. I started seminary. He transitioned out of the workplace after 17 years of serving at the same church mm-hmm. as a pastor and um, started his own nonprofit ministry. My mother-in-law got sick during that time um, and, and passed away, got cancer. She was 69 years old, passed wow. away within eight months. And, and I, I thought, wow, everywhere area in my life is in transition at the yes. same time. And I thought, this is, I wouldn't recommend this. <laughs> I don't recommend this. And it was such a difficult year. And, you know, we were trying to figure out our, you know, our kids and we became empty nesters. And what does this look like now? And how do we process my mother-in-law's death together? And, and how do we go through these changes? And it just, it was difficult, but yet it was like, we had to learn in some ways how to redefine our marriage in this season. And it's really easy to check out, right? It's really easy to not stay engaged because it takes work. And anytime we're faced with something that feels challenging and hard, it's always easier to, you know, sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and watch Netflix than deal with whatever's in front of us. And so I love that idea of just um, being resilient and not holding on to maybe some of the stuff, you know, we're, we're quicker to say we're sorry and admit yeah. where we're wrong and and those kinds of things and, and to stay engaged and then, um, gosh, how much pressure can it stand without snapping? I think that is such a a great question and a great picture of what it looks like and why we always need to keep learning because every, every year in our marriage seems to be a little bit different. Absolutely. I think that that's really true. And one of the things that, you know, Christopher and I have learned to ask each other is what do you need from me in this season? Mm. Because what worked or what met the needs in the last season may just be falling short right now. So for us to recognize, oh, things have changed. And we too are, I guess we're technically empty nesters, although our 23 year old is back in the house right now in between college graduation and what's next. So, you know, there is this like, wait, I thought you were already gone. And, and, and now we have to figure this out again. I've Um, heard that happens quite a bit. You send them (laughs) off and they just come back. Yeah. I mean, we love having him here, but you know, there are obviously adjustments. Um, yeah, so we just have to really be paying attention. And and again, you know, the notion of staying engaged and not checking out, not self-medicating, not giving up, um, I think are so, so important in midlife. And, you know, throughout the book, you you talk about all kinds of dis- different circumstances that maybe we can face during this time. And some maybe that are um, some of those things that we carry into marriage, um, our family of origin, our backgrounds, our stories, mm-hmm. um, things like trauma and, and loss, uh, things that we, expectations around sex that maybe that we've carried throughout our marriage. And now we're in this new season in midlife and we're like, these things compound over time, I think you say in the book. And I thought, wow, that is so true because there's things we carry throughout our lives. And if we don't deal with those, they're going to show up at some point. And, and oftentimes in our marriages, you know, they, they never quite go away. And so we're, we're dealing with them in new ways. And I appreciate that you take some time to go through some of those very specific, very challenging, mm-hmm. very hard things. It's helpful to name those because I yeah. think we don't always, you know, we're busy doing our lives and we don't always take time to think about how we're affected by so many of those things. 
So one of the things that really stood out for me in the midst of that is, is you talk about disappointment and expectations. And I think this is a really big one because I think some of those other things might be really specific to certain circumstances, but I think all of us, no matter how long we've been married (laughs) or what we bring into our marriage, we all deal with this, um, you know, unmet expectations and I'm curious what your journey maybe has been with this or, or what advice you would have. What do we do with unmet expectations, especially now that we've been married for 20 or however plus years and we realize, oh, I still have unmet expectations. How do, how do we do that in a way that's healthy, that moves us closer together and not pulls us further apart? Yes. So this has been a big issue for us. Um, You know, I am very much a product of America in the 1960s and early 70s. So every Disney movie that was made, um, I watched and I think I really took in those cultural markers of this is what it means to be a girl. So if you think about up until recently, you know, now they've gotten a little bit more savvy and then they're, you know, busting some of the gender stereotypes. But Back then, you know, Snow White, um, Cinderella, all of those women, young women, uh, did a lot of sitting around and waiting for their princes to come. They did a lot of singing. I don't particularly like singing. They did a lot of cleaning. I don't particularly like cleaning. Um, But somehow, like, even though that doesn't fit my personality, I sort of came into marriage thinking like, oh, well, this is what it's going to be like. Like, I will be more passive and he will sweep me on my feet. And, you know, he, based on what we hear all the time in culture, he's going to want sex all the time. Um, So there were just these expectations that I carried in for what I wanted. And then he had his own set of expectations. You know, I'm from Northern, my family's from Northern Europe, so more reserved, um, you know, less vocal about what our feelings are and what our needs are, where his family is from Southern Italy. And I talk about this in the book, but the first time I went home with him, it was, I I think it was Thanksgiving dinner. And it was sort of shocking to me. Like, I I think I literally sat there with my, you know, mouth open and my eyes bug eyed for the first two days, because it's like opera, you know, everybody's talking over everybody. And people would say things that were, I thought, borderline mean, and then they'd have a fight. And then somebody would crack a joke, and everybody would laugh, and nobody would say, I'm sorry. And it was just so wildly different than my upbringing, I really didn't have a place to put it. So he, you know, comes into marriage with that kind of expectation that when there's a conflict, for instance, we are going to hash it out, and we're going to hash it out right now. And if we raise our voices, it's okay, because we're always going to figure out, you know, how to come back together. And I, my family of origin, nobody ever talked about anger, like it wasn't okay to get angry. So the first time we had a fight, I think we, you know, we were in the room together because I, he couldn't leave. Like if he left in my family of origin, when my parents fought, somebody left and they left for the day. So to me, anger was intimately connected with abandonment. Therefore, he couldn't leave the room. Like I literally said to him, if you leave the room, like I'm done. So I think we sat near each other on our red couch for about an hour before I had the courage to say, I'm a little angry. (laughs) And then it took another half hour for me to really understand, like, what was it that I was feeling? What made me angry? Because I was so afraid that if I actually said it, that that would result in, you know, something horrible. Fear of abandonment, again, huge, huge, huge issue for me. So that's one key example where we had to figure out, you know, what are our expectations coming in? And, um, 
how is it that we're clashing and how can we how can we learn from this? So I think oftentimes people don't even know that they have expectations until they feel disappointed. And then if they don't take the time to sort of backtrack and say, gosh, you know, I'm feeling disappointed right now. What was it? What expectation got dashed that led me to feel disappointed? That's really the first and most important thing is to understand what do you do when you feel disappointed? For me, if I'm sarcastic, then I know, oh, I'm probably disappointed about something because that's how it manifests in me. So being aware of when dis- when you feel disappointed and then being able to trace back like what, you know, where did that where did that come from? What was my expectation? And then figuring out, is the expectation I'm carrying a cultural expectation? Is there, it have nothing to do with morality and it, everything to do with, this is what feels comfortable for me. Um, another example for us that, that has been a huge conflict still is sometimes, um, I tend to be very punctual. Like I have, uh, an inner clock that is very tightly wound. So being on time, really important to me. I think if you like blow somebody off or an hour late, like there's something morally wrong with you that, and then that is my energy. Like I totally own that where for him, it was like, time is a metaphor. You know, he doesn't have to obey the clock. Whatever he's doing is what he's doing. He's not thinking like, oh, I only have an hour to do this and then I need to leave. He's totally, totally present, which makes him an amazing counselor. But if you're the wife waiting for him to come home at six o'clock, it can be problematic. Um, So for me to be able to tease out, you know, just because he has a different concept of time does not mean that I'm better than him. I had to jettison that moral energy. Um, and apologize to him. And then he had to learn how to be able to say, oh, it matters to her if I'm an hour and a half late. So I need to be able to adjust and to be able to communicate, hey, you know, by no no doing of my own, things are running late today. So I'm not going to be there at six o'clock. I'm going to be home more like 730. So it's been an adjustment for both of us. Um, And it it does take a lot of work. Because sometimes the expectations that we have are really, really important, right? And we don't want to let go of them. We don't want to let go of fidelity. We don't want to let go of honesty. Those things are key. But some of the other expectations that we have are really just about what makes us feel comfortable. And those are the ones that we have to be able to negotiate and decide, am I carrying an expectation for my spouse that's realistic or that's unrealistic? And if it's unrealistic, then it's uncharitable and unkind to continue to expect the person to meet your expectations. And sometimes we have to really grieve those losses and to be able to say, gosh, you know, he's not going to be as affectionate as I had hoped my husband would be, or um, she's not going to want to have sex as much as I was hoping we would. And and we have to work that out. We have to talk it through and we have to grieve and we have to come to a place of agreement and understanding with each other. And Dorothy, how do you know when you come to a place of agreement and understanding and ex- and acceptance for who this person is versus um, I'm just going to uh, accept it, but I'm going to be bitter and resentful about it because I can't change this person? Because I imagine in, in when we get this phase in our marriage, it's kind of like you could go one way or the other with that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that is the $50,000 question, right? Is how do we let go of the things that we wanted in our marriages um, that may never happen? You know, I think for me, I can give examples from both of us. So Christopher loves to talk. He loves to process things. And his favorite time to process things is like 930 at night. And I am, I am like 
done. I am done with my day at 930 at night. And it's very hard for me to engage in those kind of conversations that he wants to have. So he, he sounds has- like my college kids. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My college students when they call me at 11 o'clock and want to right. talk about everything. Right. So he has had to accept the fact that I am never going to be as extroverted as he is. And I'm also just never going to be as engaged late in the evening as he is. Right. So that's a loss for him. And he has to be willing to accept my limitations and continue to love me. Um, for me, you know, again, referencing back to the, the Disney movies, I did come in with this unrealistic sense of what romance looked like. For Christopher, he, he really feels like so much of romance is all sentimentality and it's not, it doesn't have integrity and that is really important for him. So he finds his way to show that he loves me, but I can't expect that he's going to bring me home like gifts and cards and flowers for Valentine's Day. It doesn't happen, right? And the first couple of years, I was resentful and I was growing bitter. And then around the 10-year mark, we had like massive fights. And it was all about this, is how is it that we can reconcile um, the limitations that we each have and the ways that that you know, crashes into each other and still love each other? And those are really hard conversations, you know, where we have to be willing to say, I am sad that you can't do this. And it does grieve me that you're not willing to, you know, fill in the blank. Um, And then we decide, well, can we continue to love? Can we continue to learn what it means to overlook the things that really aren't that important um, while holding each other accountable things for the things that are important, right? Because again, we can't just say whatever, um, right? We have to be willing to say, you know, it's not okay if you're using pornography. It's not okay if you're overspending on our budget. Like those are the sort of things that we can't just let go of. And I think one of the ways for me, when I know that I'm not in a good space is paying attention to my inner monologue. Like if I'm, if I hear myself, you know, listing off my husband's deficits or remembering with a level of, you know, the thing that he said last night or two weeks ago or last year, then I know I've got some more forgiveness work to do. So for us to be able to, you know, have the humility and self-awareness to say, I'm carrying some pretty negative thoughts and some pretty unchristlike thoughts toward my spouse right now. So I need to do some work to figure out um, how to move out of that space. Yeah, that's so good. And that humility, that self-awareness. And then I think it also points to why it's so important to have this, you know, as people of God, why having the Holy Spirit, why relying on God and and having our dependence there. Um, Because number one, we can't do this on our own, right? We can't just, um, we don't have enough willpower or enough um, self-power to do that. But when we can come back to say, you know, take a step back and allow the Holy Spirit to work and say, Lord, help me discern where I need to extend grace, where I need to just look at my spouse and see this beautiful person that you created that's very different than me. And where do I need to lean in and challenge them a little bit? Because some of these expectations are need to be met in a different way that's okay and God honoring. And so I think that's such an important distinction. And again, it's a process, right? It's discernment. It's all of these things. It's sanctification. It's, it's all of these things that as, as, as children of the most holy God, it's like, we are praying that God is working these things out in ourselves as we are working them out together as a married couple. Yes, absolutely. Midlife is one of those times where we really, 
you know, come face to face with like, oh, this thing that drives me crazy might never change. And so what do we do with that? And that's, you know, when I said at the top, that's sort of the facing the limits, the limitations of our powerlessness, you know, we're never really powerless because we always have agency in how we respond. But as you said, like we cannot change our spouse. We can love them. We can pray for them. We can hope for them. We can support them, but we cannot make them change. And when you realize that and realize the ramifications for yourself in the context of your marriage, you know, it is one of those like holy moments where you have to decide, am I going to press in and continue to love or am I going to check out? Yeah. And I love that you say, you know, in, in confessing these limitations of our power and even the limitations of our own selves. I mean, you have a whole chapter on aging and it's like, oh, that's horrible to read. I do not, I did not like that chapter. I thought, oh, where we don't, that's okay. It's, it's reality. I know I'll get there, but it's just where we realize we don't have the power. And again, it makes us dependent on one another as well as the Lord, but then also to use those spaces and those confessions as a place where God then can transform us. Like that's where you want to get us to. It's like these things are, we can deal with these things, but can we deal with these things in a way that's actually going to transform us and propel us to new and deeper places? And I think that's it's so beautiful that you keep pointing us in that direction. Yeah. And confession has really, you know, you brought up that word that has been such a key thing for us throughout our entire marriage is coming to each other within 24 hours. Anytime that we do something that we know we shouldn't have done is we confess our sins to each other out loud. And then the other person speaks forgiveness over us. And, you know, sometimes obviously there's conversations to be had, but I think that that has helped us to grow and to become more holy and certainly to become more trustworthy because we know that if some wrong has happened, we can count on the other person um, admitting it. Yeah. And I think the more I have just learned as I, over time, you know, I've, I've seen my own weaknesses so much more clearly. I still have blind spots, but you know, when you can see the grace you need, it's so much easier to extend that grace to someone else because you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. I, I need this as much as I need to give it. And it just, it just, again, keep leaning into how God teaches us those things. That's so important. I, I want to bring up another subject because I think this is so important. And I think so many many people um, that I know at least are dealing with this. And that is this caregiving aspect that we find ourselves in. And when you get to this space in your life, so many people, I think your book said 55% maybe, are finding themselves in a place where they are caring for children still in their home. And maybe those are young adults. Maybe they're not, you know, little children. And then they're caring for aging parents. And the different stresses that this brings on a marriage when you're being pulled at both ends um, and it's a lot. Actually, when, when I was reading this, I was like, wow, there's a bunch of things in here that I hadn't even thought of from, you know, financial burdens to practical needs to how you have to choose between your family and maybe your parents or your kids and your parents. You know, so many good things. I, I just people listening who are going through this, I just cannot recommend this and this chapter especially enough. But reflect on that with me because this is such a unique stage. How do, how do couples manage this or survive it or thrive in this stage? What do they need to know in this point in their marriage? Wow. There's so much, um, you know, my father, um, he was getting his last chemotherapy treatment 
no, radiation treatment, sorry, for cancer. And the aide forgot to lower the table and he fell off and broke the top of his femur. Um, and that just plunged him into, that was, you know, the beginning of the end, as it often is for the elderly. Um, so he was five and a half hours away and I'm the closest relative, which meant every other weekend, pretty much for nine months, I was making the drive down to, to visit him, to clean for him, to make food for him. Um, the amount of physical work that we do in and of itself is exhausting. And then there's the emotional, spiritual work of helping our pro parents to end well. Um, you know, some of them are not going to be believers. Some of them are going to be still carrying a boatload of resentment and anger and unforgiveness. And as we meaningfully love them and try to help them end well, that just takes us so much energy. Uh, it was it was amazing to me just how spent I was in that season. We still had two of our kids living at home during that time. One was just finishing with uh, high school. So there were all the things that, all the ways that I wanted to support, particularly the one who was about to leave, you know, because I knew it, well, this is your last soccer season and this is your last, you know, gateway, et cetera. And, and wanting to be there and missing so many things that year. Um, not being able to really support Christopher very well in that season and, and us needing to have you know constant conversations just logistically. Okay, I'm not going to be here for the next three days. So who are you going to get to watch the dog? And who's going to pick up this one from school? And who's going to, you know, all these things that normally I take care of um, that had to be offloaded. So the communication level needs to go way, 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 way up. And I think that was the time that we started having our Sunday evening meetings, which are not very sexy. They're not at all romantic, but we just sit down with our calendars and say like, what's happening this week? What do I need to know? Um, is there anything that I can do for you or vice versa? So the communication has to go way up. The sense of um, asking again, asking for help, um, being able to say, you know what, the house is just not going to get cleaned this month <laughs> or, or I can't take care of X right now. So if you can't do it, then we're just going to have to be okay that it's going to go undone. Um, being able to step back from the things that we normally do and just be more accepting and more gracious of each other and of the limitations that we have. And then I think really being able to learn how to say no I know I can't do that. You know, for many of us, we're doers, we were servers, we're leaders and being able to look out and say, yeah, I, I usually do that and I can't do it in this season. So there were many things that I had to step back from, um, good things, things that I love to do. And that was really hard for me because so much of my identity is wrapped up in how I work and in how I serve people. Um, but it was essential for my own mental health. And I think that that would be the last thing is for us to pay attention to um, our own needs, you know, to be able to say, I can't do this because I need to be able to sleep or because I need to be able to work out. So prioritizing what is it that we need to take care of ourselves, because if we completely fall apart, then there's another problem entirely, right? That's so good. And I think that's also where, you know, going back to that malleability, the resilience, the engagement, the flexibility. Uh, and I had to laugh because the, your book came out in September 2020. So pre pandemic. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, did you have any idea what we needed to know from this book and the things that maybe you would have put in it? But those coming back to those core things, when you face crisis, when you're in those situations, the caregiving situation that it's like, 
wow, grace upon grace upon grace and flexibility and being able to say what you need and taking care of yourself, like those things become, I mean, they're non-essentials, right? I mean, you've got to do those things if your marriage is going to survive through some of those challenging seasons. And even just being able to communicate with our kids, you know, hey, I really don't have a whole lot to give right now. So if I'm short with you, if I'm impatient with you, please don't take that personally. This is what this is what it feels like to me to be in this season, um, not assuming that the people around us understand what we're going through. So being able to communicate well to them, I think, is also a helpful thing. So Dorothy, what would you say to someone who's listening today that their marriage feels stuck or they just feel like um, maybe they're beyond hope or they're thinking about checking out at this season of, in their marriage? What what encouragement would you give to them today? I think that first I would say I'm really sorry. You know, it, it is very painful to acknowledge when we're in those spaces. And to some extent, I think many couples go through those sort of things at various points in their marriage. So I wouldn't want somebody to feel like they're alone. I wouldn't want somebody to feel like um, there's no hope. Really, I think in the, you know, Christopher and I have been doing marriage classes and marriage workshops and coaching couples for like 25 years now. And I think that we both believe, this might be naive, but I think we both believe that if, if both spouses are willing to work, if both spouses are willing to own their issues and not be blaming the other person, and if they're willing to forgive that no marriage um, is beyond hope. So obviously if one person is checked out and the other person is doing all the work, that is really, really tedious. And that is a very difficult thing. Um, I think my recommendation would be to reach out for help. And even if your spouse is not willing to get help, which is often the case, you know, one person is saying, I want to work on this. I want to go to counseling. And the other spouse is like, yeah, no, sorry, not there. You can still work on yourself. You can't change your spouse, but you can still work on yourself and grow and change and um, learn how to love better, learn what you need. Um, and, And that matters, right? And maybe that will impact the whole of the marriage. Maybe not. Um, but so not again, going back to not giving up, not just saying whatever, this is just where we are and it's not going to change. Really pressing in spiritually. Um, obviously, you know, if you're not a person of faith, I'm not sure what that would look like. But for me, being able to turn to the Lord and saying, I'm wanting to connect to the vine, show me how to connect to the vine because I need that liquid that's flowing through. I need that love. And then really pressing into community, because without the support of other people, without other people knowing us and being able to walk with us, I think that it really reduces our chances. Um, We need to have other people with us in our lives, speaking to us, encouraging us, helping us in practical ways and praying for us, um, particularly during those times when things are, are difficult. That's so good and so helpful. You know, at the before we came on to record together, you said, you know, you have kind of five essential practices for for people in this midlife season. And you might have just mentioned some. I don't know. But is there anything else you would add to that or add to that list of what are some practices that people can do in this this season of their marriage? Yeah. And I think as you, you know, we talked briefly about this before we started recording that I'm not one who is... um you know, you, you're not going to find 10 tips to a successful marriage in either of my books. It's very, I feel like it's how we, how we succeed, how we create a mutually fulfilling marriage is, is very organic and it's very different from couple to couple. But I think that there's some essential 
um, ingredients that maybe couples can practice, particularly during during midlife, that will help them. And the first would be what we talked about at the beginning is to do your spiritual work, right? Become more self-aware and um, hold on to a growth mindset. Believe that even if you're in your 50s or 60s or 70s, that you can still change and you can still grow. That said, Growth feels really slow sometimes. Change feels really slow sometimes, but it happens. It does happen. You know, when I look back over the context of our marriage, I can see my husband and I have both changed. We've both grown. We're different people now than we were when we got married 32 years ago. So two would be what I just said would be sew yourself into a healthy community, a healthy, diverse community where people are different from you. Because if you're in the community where everybody's the same, you're going to be less likely to have somebody challenge you or to say, you know what, there's a, there's something there that doesn't feel right to me. Um, and a healthy community I also see as one that uh, will grieve with you, will will walk with you in the in the context of your suffering rather than just saying, you know, get over it right? Because that, that's not helpful. So we want to be in a space where people can acknowledge the difficult things. Three would be take care of your body. We cannot forsake taking care of our bodies as we age because our bodies change. And as they get older, you know, it's harder to keep the weight off. It's harder to stay in shape. Um, we're more likely to get sick during that time period. So it's really, really essential that we don't neglect taking care of ourselves. Um, Three, checking in with our family members on a regular basis, uh, whether it's a spouse, a roommate, your elderly parents, your siblings, and saying, you know, how are things going? Are we stuck? Are there places where we're stuck? Are there places where we're not really meeting each other's needs? Um, and what can we do to change that? That kind of ongoing conversation, as we talked about earlier. And then I think really creating a vision for the last chapter of your life. Like, what do you want your legacy to be and how are you going to get there? And the last chapter, I talk about that as telos. Um, you know, it's just really thinking, where do I want to go and who am I going to travel with? And what's, what is that journey going to look like? And a way to talk about that practically is what's the unique thing that my marriage can bring to the people around us? And it it's, not necessarily, you know, serving in church on Sunday morning. It could be, but it could also be um, volunteering at the food pantry or volunteering at the local animal shelter or just making sure that you shovel your elderly neighbor's driveway when it snows, like having people over for dinner, having young couples over for dinner and, and saying, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? What questions do you have about us, ab about, you know, what it looks like to be married? Um, those sort of very intentional things, I think, can carry us through into the last chapter of our lives in ways that are deeply meaningful um, and also not just for us meaningful, but meaningful for the people around us, because I think that then we're leaving a legacy of love and a legacy of service that's going to outlast us. Mm. That's so good. So beautiful. We could talk so much more marriage, but you've given us so much to think about. So many good nuggets. I love that. I'm going to point people to your resources uh, in the outro and already did in the intro. And so um, just one last question before I let you go. I'm sad we're about out of time, but I asked this question to everyone who comes on the show and, you know, the, the show is called Deeper Still. Mm -hmm. And so part of the belief that we have here um, is that God is never done with us. We've never... We we never get to a place where we have arrived. And, and just when we think we actually might have figured some things out, God calls us to go deeper. And then he calls us even to go deeper still in his goodness and his kindness. And so, Dorothy, I'm wondering today, uh, what is an area in your life where God is calling you to go deeper still? 
I think there's a lot of places where I don't feel done, uh, which is humbling, to be honest with you. And, and sometimes it even feels embarrassing. I mean, like I've been following Jesus very intentionally now for like 43 years. And the reality is I'm still trying to untangle the fear that is, is resident in my very body and, and the control issues that tend to go along with fear. Um, I've had a considerable amount of losses in my life. So I've had chronic health issues now for 22 years. So I would say probably what's at the top of the list would be figuring out what does it look like to trust God um, and to trust God's goodness, knowing A, he may never heal me and B, that he's not going to spare me from experiencing more losses, right? So what does it look like for me to live in a place of freedom and peace while being aware of that reality, it's it's really the age old question of theodicy, right? How do we make sense of God God's goodness in the midst of loss and suffering? Mm-hmm. So I think that that it's not a new thing. It's something that I feel like that the Lord has been working on with me for a long time. But particularly in this season of loss, um, I think that I really need to continue to pay attention to that and to not allow myself to grow cynical. Um, you know, when we get to this age, we can look back and, and just get, you know, roll our eyes and just think, I can't even believe how broken the church is, or I can't believe what the government looks like. And, you know, just default to sarcasm and cynicism. And that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. help anybody. It doesn't help us. It doesn't help the situation. It doesn't help our spouse. So to really be willing to continue to say, I don't want to grow old and be a cynical person. I don't want to grow old and be bitter. So what is it going to take for me to be the kind of, you know, 80 year old woman who people can look at and say, wow, you know, she has a pretty remarkable life and and have that all be about Jesus. Amen to that. What a what a beautiful word. And I love that that just ties us back into right where we started too of, of when we do that, when we're self-aware, when we're humble, when we're close to the Lord, that that impacts all of the relationships around us, our own soul, our marriage, our friendships, all of those places. So what a beautiful way to end us. And thank you for being so honest throughout this whole episode, but especially being honest where God's calling you to go deeper still right now. I'm really encouraged by that. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for being here. We so appreciate you and wish you all the best uh, as you continue to write and do all the beautiful things you do at ministry and and mentor couples um, because you're making a difference in the kingdom. And so we appreciate you for that. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to be on here with you. Well, friends, so much good ground that we covered today. So many helpful encouragements and reminders as we seek to have the kinds of marriages and relationships that reflect the grace and unity that God calls us to, as well as each of us individually to just be the kind of human beings that God has called us to be. And so I'm thankful for Dorothy and her good word today. Be sure to check out both of her books, Marriage in the Middle, as well as Marriage is Beautiful. And I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we'd be doing a book giveaway. And so that's what I want to introduce right now. We will be giving away a copy of each of her books. All you have to do is go to my Instagram page at Sue Camfield. You can leave a comment. You can tag a friend. You can share this episode and you'll immediately be put in to a drawing to win one of these books. So I would encourage you to do that. In fact, don't think about it. Just go right now. Just do it. Drop a comment, tag someone, and uh, we'll put you in the drawing. Well, my friends, it's been a fun day. I'm so glad that you were here. We'll be back in two weeks with another great episode. And so until then, make sure you're paying attention and go in God's grace. Mm-hmm.